This is the last Sunday I'll be doing that, by the way, because thanks to Michael, the camera has been installed up there and we're going to run it this, this afternoon. As a, but thank you very much, Michael, for, for helping there. And uh, if you have a Bible, perhaps you can turn with me to Genesis. Um, and we are working through the book of Genesis as a church on Lord's Day mornings. Um, you missed the Riverton chapter last week, chapter 34, and uh, we moved to 35. And, well, I won't read 30, 36, but I'll refer to 36 as well. And the book of Genesis is, is essentially about God working out his promises and his providence in one very messed up family. Your family has issues, this family has more issues. And Genesis is one of the longest books in the Bible, 50 chapters, and only the Psalms, Isaiah, and Jeremiah have more chapters. If you have a Bible trivia quiz this week, you might want to remember that. But of these 50 chapters, the first 11 cover creation, fall, flood, and then the confusion of the languages. By contrast, 39 chapters out of 50 are needed to cover the lives of four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. After spending 11 chapters on thousands of years, we slow down and the microscope zeroes in on this one family across four generations. God in his wisdom apparently gave us what we needed to know in 11 chapters about creation fall. And in some ways, that was a preface to the main story because the main story is about this family. And lest we think it is a family 2,000 years ago, it is our family that we are a part of by faith. So it's our history. And this morning we bring the Jacob cycle to a close. Now, Jacob does not die. He's very much going to appear in the Joseph story. He has an important role to play. But this is the passing of the baton from one generation to the next. And... The book of Genesis, though we have 50 chapters, it's good to remember that the, the chapters, the 50 chapters themselves aren't inspired. A more clearly inspired delineation are the 10 generations. They're called Toldoth. The 10 Toldoths in the book of Genesis. Toldoth is the word which is translated generation. And even though the last one is Genesis 37, verse 2, which says, this is the Toldoth of Jacob, it is actually the generations that came from Jacob. It's not so much the story of Jacob as it is his sons. So Genesis 35 brings to a close our study of Jacob. And in chapter 36, there is like an addition, this told off of Esau. So what we have in Genesis 35 is a tying up of loose ends and a final look at Jacob and chapter 36 summarises Esau before we move on to the story within a story about Joseph. I'll refer to Genesis 36 at the end, but we'll just read Genesis 35. Let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word comes through your hands. Heavenly Father, give me the words to speak well of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. 
Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were within him, were with him, Put away the foreign gods that were, are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they, they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. But Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of, land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance into from Ephrath, Rachel went into labour and she had hard labour. And when her labour was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you shall have another son. You have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edah. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhar, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, of Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. There are, th there are three themes in this final major section of Jacob's life, and the three themes will be our three points. There is correction, there's a confirmation, and then there's a completion. And verses 1 to 8 is the correction. 
If you remember in chapter 34, Genesis 34, there was that horrible story of Dinah and the Shechemites. And as Dinah is violated, and then her brothers, who do have the right to vindicate her, vindicate her, go about it in completely the wrong way. They should have trusted the Lord to vindicate. And Jacob, we saw, was passively indifferent, it seems, to this great atrocity against his daughter, against their sister, Dinah. And if you remember three other times as we walked through the book of Genesis, one of the women of God, one of the matriarchs, was taken. Sarah was taken by Pharaoh when Abraham lied. Sarah was taken by Abimelech. Rebekah was taken by another Abimelech when Isaac had lied. And three times it happened that the matriarch was taken by a foreign king. And each time the Lord sovereignly intervened to rescue her. Now we're not told that explicitly, but surely one of the lessons to learn is that Jacob should have led his family to trust that the Lord was able to vindicate and able to rescue their sister. But as he was passive, as he was indifferent, his sons took vengeance into their own hands. And we left off in Genesis 33, as I referred to last week, that Jacob built an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. And then Genesis 34 has no mention of God at all, almost deliberately as everything goes off the rails. But now Genesis 35 begins, arise, go up to Bethel, the house of God. And Jacob had made a vow earlier when he was fleeing the promised land, when he went to Paddan Aram to Rebekah's household, that he would come back. And he made a vow that he would come back to Bethel. Jacob came back to the promised land, yes, but he settled, he stopped short. He didn't go to Bethel, he stopped at Shechem. And he was not in the right place, he did not fulfil his vow, so God corrects him now. This is a correcting. He came back to the promised land, he did not do all that he promised. So chapter 35 starts with, arise, God says to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from Esau. So last week we saw Jacob who was anxious over the troubles that Simeon and Levi had caused him. And he was floundering as the leader of his family. He set up his camp too close to the world, to Shechem. He neglected the vow that he had made 20 odd years before when he set out from Paddan Aram. And now God holds him to that promise. This is the only time that God directs a patriarch to build an altar. Other times it's always a response. But here God says, no, this is to be a place of worship. And God wants Jacob to be obedient and worshipful, but not on Jacob's terms, on God's terms. So he needs a corrective because he settled in the wrong place. He was settling, he lived too close to the world. So God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing Esau. So the correction is not just for Jacob, it's for his whole family. He leads them. So finally we see Jacob 
growing, and it's a stark contrast. The leader he was not in Genesis 34 is now becoming the leader that God wants. And then look at what Jacob does in verse 2. He turned to his household and said, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. Jacob, as the family leader, is leading the family in repentance. And part of being able to lead them in repentance is that he himself comes to grips with his own sin. Jacob had to get his act together first. He needed to show the people that he was serious. He wasn't calling his family to a standard that he was not willing to live. He needed to repent. He went to the wrong place. And now he's going to Bethel to build an altar. And now he's going to lead his people in repentance. I hope you realise that repentance is not just feeling bad about things. The world feels bad if it's caught. That's regret. That is regret. If you're caught, you feel sorry. You don't need the Spirit of God to regret bad decisions. We've seen a lot of bad decisions recently. But non-Christians regret bad decisions all the time. But repentance realises, I just don't feel bad. I turn around. I was going this way, now I'm going to go this way. The Puritan Thomas Watson said that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. The sight of sin, the sorrow for sin, the confession of sin, the shame for sin, the hatred for sin, and turning from sin. Turning from sin. And it's, I think it's often that last one that is lacking. You know, I'll, yeah, I feel bad. I confess it. I hate it. But do you turn from it? That's what Jacob has to do. Turn from one place and go to Bethel. And now to his family, he leads them in repentance. Because he gives these commands. Get rid of the foreign gods. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. And come with me, we're going to Bethel. Get rid of the foreign gods. We've seen not so subtly throughout Genesis, the way that the author Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making fun of these gods. You know, he, we saw the gods that can be covered up and be sat on in a women, woman's menstrual impurity, as we saw earlier. There are household gods that you can steal. What kind of god can you sit on? What kind of God can you steal? We well, see what's happening here. They gave to Jacob the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now, what is the big deal? Earrings. I'm not standing here and saying if you're wearing earrings, take them off straight away. I'm not saying that at all because these earrings were probably some kind of pagan amulet and they were part of the idolatry. So they needed to take the foreign gods, the amulets, and what did they do? They gave them a funeral. They actually gave them a funeral. They gave these foreign gods, these earrings, a funeral. They buried them under the terebinth tree that was in Shechem. They are dead. They've always been dead, so we're going to bury them. That's, you know, that is how much good foreign gods are. They're dead. They've always been dead. We're going to bury them. Get rid of the foreign gods. 
Purify yourself, change your clothes, a symbolic rep rep representation that we are starting again. We're having a fresh start. Maybe God is calling you this morning and he's given you a fresh start, a new beginning. Let us arise and go to Bethel. Essentially obey. So the primary requirement in the covenant is exclusive allegiance to the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Joshua 24 verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I've often thought this, that we don't have many problems adding gods to our lives. We do it all the time. Dare I say it, football teams, I've got something really close to my own heart, football teams, or you know, we can add gods to our lives. But the problem is subtraction. To have the gods of the pagan nations, no big deal. Amorites have gods, Amalekites have gods, but the one true God says you're not adding unless you are subtracting every other God. That's why idolatry is linked to adultery, because when you get married, you make the vow and forsaking all others. To get married as addition without a subtraction is not, the great, not a great marriage. When, but we see that happening in the Bible. It is not God's plan. It did not go well for Jacob. So you need to subtract these gods. You need to be serious and single-minded. I'm not saying that you never follow football, by the way, because I'm, I'm hoping my team will be, get bought by some rich American this week. But notice where they're buried, the terebinth tree that was under Shechem. And Genesis 12, verse 6, the beginning of the story of the patriarchs, when Abraham is going up to the promised land from Ur, I find this really exciting, by the way, so just bear with me on a moment of exhilaration. Genesis 12, verse 6, Abraham passed through the land to take the place at Shechem, the oak of Moray. At that land, the Canaanites were in the land. That's where Abraham started his journey in the promised land. And since then, it had been a special place. So it is fitting that this terebinth tree, this special tree near Shechem, that mark the beginning of Abraham's journeys in the promised land would be the place where they buried their foreign gods outside of the promised land. Bury them. So Jacob and his family needed a correction. But there's a good example and a spiritual lesson. Because it's really easy to think that we have reached our goal. And to suddenly become apathetic and lethargic. You know that you're driving, you're driving, you're driving, whether it's to a career or a graduation or a spiritual goal in your life, and you think you've arrived and you let your guard down. This is exactly what happened. They're on the journey back from Paddan Aram, back to the Promised Land after these decades. It's a difficult journey. They have flocks and herds. They've gone by Esau. They thought they were going to die and they did not. It's easy for them to think, we've made it. And they let their guard down. And it happens in subtle ways for us. It's at the end of strenuous activity or labour that you 
think I deserve something. I deserve a little bit of sin. I deserve a few clicks on that porn website. Or I deserve self-pity after all that I've been through. It's like running 5K, which I know I don't look like I did, but I used to run marathons, I promise you, 20 odd years ago. But if you finish a 5K, you can think, I can eat whatever I want for the rest of the week. It doesn't quite work like that. But see, Jacob easily thought that we've finally made it. We can let our guard down. But things were not right. The mission not accomplished. They needed a correction. Jacob, leading his family, needed correction. Secondly, confirmation, verses 9 to 15. Now it's easy to be confused with the story, because you may recall in Genesis 28, when he leaves the promised land, <coughs> there he has an encounter with God. He named it Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. Here he names the place again, house of God. This isn't a confusing story told twice. It is two distinct episodes with the second confirming the first. Because it is deliberate that Jacob needs to learn the lesson again. Do you ever wonder why God keeps teaching you the same lessons? Because we need to learn the same lessons. That's why he keeps teaching us the same lessons. Paul said very, very, very clearly, it's no trouble for me to remind you of the same things again. And once you become a Christian, and it's exciting, you learn in all these new things. I didn't know these names, I didn't know these terms, and all these things in my Bible, and that's wonderful. And then you get to a few hundred or a few thousand sermons and the rest of your life is about reminders. You know why we need reminding? Because we forget. We're mentally forgetful, we're spiritually forgetful. So God has to confirm, remind. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. And there are a number of things going on here, a number of parallels with other parts of Genesis. So note the basic pattern, what happens here, starting at verse 9. We have the Lord appearing to Jacob. Then in verse 10, he changes his name. He appears to him as God Almighty. He says that in verse 11. And then he tells Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. He said, nations will come from you. Kings shall come from you. He promises the land. And that's the pattern. The Lord appears. I am God Almighty. I will change your name. Be fruitful. Kings will come from you. Peoples will come from you. You will get a land. Just keep that basic pattern in mind. Genesis 17, the confirmation of the covenant with Abraham. It's exactly the same. Genesis 17 verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham. What did we see in Genesis 35 verse 9? God appeared to Jacob. And the God who appeared to Jacob said he is Lord, God Almighty, Lord Almighty. In Genesis 17, verse 1, I am Lord God Almighty. What does he do in chapter 17? You're no longer Abraham, but you'll be called Abraham. You see that in Genesis 17, verse 4. He says, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. Verse 6. I'll make you into nations. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant with you. And then at the end of chapter 8, all the land of Canaan shall be an everlasting possession. It's the same covenant confirmation again. The Lord appears. I am Lord Almighty. I change your name. Be fruitful, multiply. 
I'll give you the land. You will be a great nation. Abraham chapter 17, Jacob chapter 35. So the confirmation is the same promise that God gave to his grandfather. I am the same God who was with your grandfather Abraham. I'm doing the same thing that I did with Abraham. Abraham, I will do with you, Jacob, Israel. And there are parallels as well to the first Bethel story in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, verse 13, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. That was God's promise. Genesis 35 is the confirmation that God gave to Abraham and Jacob is also inheriting the blessings that he got from Isaac. Genesis 28, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply. That you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. You may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. The last word we hear from Isaac before Isaac dies at the end of the chapter, Isaac said to Jacob, the promises of Abraham now I give to you to be fruitful and multiply. Which is Genesis 1, it's part of the creation mandate. Be made in the image of God, be fruitful and multiply. Now this great people is coming from, at this point in redemptive history, this one family. And there is another one other parallel with Genesis 28. Genesis 28 verse 18, so early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel. And Genesis 35 verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. God is reminding him, confirming his promises. And Jacob is repeating the very act of worship back to the stone, the pillar and the oil. We've had a span of years in between when Jacob left and God blessed him. He got married. He had loads of children, and now he's back. Sometimes do you ever look on your life and think, I have no idea why I ended up here. Why did God move us here? Why did we have to go through all of that trouble? Why did that happen? And maybe you're in the midst of that. You're in the middle of the 20 Laban years that don't make a lot of sense. And it seems like a lot of hard work. Or maybe at some point, whether in this life or the next, God will show you what he has been doing. And Jacob is coming full circle. Even those Laban years, when they were far from the promised land, and it seemed like God had forgotten. He had not. So here you are, Jacob. I was true to every single one of my promises. 
And Jacob, having the covenant confirmed, confirms it again. We can read through Genesis and these various doubling up seem confusing or repetitive. Like, Jacob, didn't your name already get changed to Israel's? Did we not already have a Bethel? And now you're naming it Bethel again? That's where sometimes the higher critical scholars develop all these kind of bonkers theories. But when you read Genesis, you see what God is doing to repeat the stories. Not just saying listen to the story again, but here is the story in a new episode, in a new part of Jacob's life. Because he and we need to learn the same lesson again. They tell us something very important. Jacob is back on track, but God never left the track. God never got off track. And that is true for you and your life. So don't think that when your life is off track, God had to turn and deal with the Ukraine for a while and he couldn't work out what was happening in your life. He is God. He can do it all. God never gets off track. God never gets confused. There is no plan B with God. God knows what he is good doing. And even when Jacob was off track, God was not. And notice how Jacob has, has, has matured. At Shechem, he worshipped according to his agenda. And he was not blessed nor a blessing. Now he worships at God's command in God's place. And God reiterates, confirms, repeats. You are blessed and you will be a blessing to the nations. Do things God's way. So we have this corrective. We had that corrective where God corrected where Jacob was going. Then we had God's repetition, God's confirmation. And finally we have the completion. And in this chapter we're in a time of transition from one generation to the next. And what we find is that Jacob now has to endure a series of sadnesses in his life. They pile up one after the other. His nurse, Deborah, dies. And then Jacob's wife dies. Then Jacob's firstborn violates the concubine. And then Jacob's father dies. Just think of that, that's a lot of grief. There are a lot of griefs piled up there, one after the other. Think about Rebecca, how close they were. Esau was Isaac's favourite, Jacob was Rebecca's favourite. There's no record that he saw Rebecca again. She died by the time Jacob returned from Paddan Aram. There's no record of a joyful reunion. There's no memorial of her death. Although we read in, cha read in chapter 49, she's buried in that cave of Machpelah, which Abraham brought for Sarah. But in the place where you'd expect to hear about Rebecca dying, you hear about Deborah. From Rebecca's non-mention to Deborah's death to then Rachel. It was Rachel who said to Jacob, if you do not give me a child, I will die. And now it is by the gift of a child that she dies. Her second son. She wants to call him Ben-Onai, the son of my sorrow. But Jacob names him Benjamin, son of my right hand, the place of strength, preeminence. But it tells us something really important. The original hearers in Moses' day would have known that with Benjamin we now have the 12, the 12 tribes. The family, 
is complete with the birth of the twelfth son. The family is complete. So you have the non-mention of Rebecca, you have the death of Deborah, you have the death of Rachel, and then you have the sin with Reuben. And this is significant. The sin was sexual, Reuben should not have laid with his father's concubine, but the sin was also familial. There's no coincidence that this happens and is recorded immediately after Rachel dies. There may have been some jockeying for position. We know that Rachel was the favourite wife, but who is going to be the wife preeminent now that Jacob's favourite wife has gone? So it could be deliberate that Reuben sleeps with Bilhah because now she's in a place of defilement as well. And who will rise but Leah, who of course is Reuben's mother? It's also probably Reuben asserting his claim as the firstborn, which backfires and leads to the rejection of blessing, we'll find out later. But it was also political. He was certainly trying to usurp Jacob's authority. We see this several times during the United Monarchy. Ishbosheth was disturbed when Abner, Abner slept with Saul's concubine Rispa, because Abner's act was a move for the throne, 2 Samuel 3. Ahithophel urged Absalom to take David's concubines because that would make clear that he was moving in to take over his father's throne. Solomon interpreted Adonijah's request for Abishag, the concubine, in the same way. So in other words, we see several times in the lives of Saul, David, Solomon that for a rival to take a concubine is not just a sin of sexual adultery, but a political move. Who has the authority? What kind of man would take his father's concubine? Well, the man you want as king. That's how fallen, sinful men think. But of course it does not work out that way. It does not work out well for Reuben, as the blessing and the benefit of being the firstborn, that will pass on to his brothers, to Judah and Joseph. Not to Reuben, who's trying to usurp his aging father's authority. So you have Rebecca, Deborah, the sin of Reuben, and the death of Isaac. And last we left Isaac, he was a hundred years old, frail, weak eyesight, over a hundred. Now he's lived a long life. We're many years back into the promised land. He's 180, full of days. <coughs> He's given an honourable burial. He plays an important role in salvation's history. There's some reconciliation, it does appear, because Esau and Jacob buried Isaac. We saw some reconciliation, Genesis 33, but they, 3, but they come together when Isaac dies. Isaac is given an honourable burial. He, like his son, would do. Esau exercised weak leadership. Esau had a point had a penchant for being ruled by his stomach. So it's not unlike many of the epithets that would later be given for the kings of Israel and Judah, that so-and-so walked in the ways of his father David, yet he did not remove the high places. God looks favourably on Isaac. He's honoured in his death. Yet he missed some very important things. And it's possible for us to live a basically faithful life and for the Lord to say, you missed some things. It's a glass half full, the glass half empty, 
for all you can do with the years you have remaining. And that is why Jacob gives us such an important lesson here as we think about the closing of Jacob in the centre of the story. Jacob is a lot like us. What have we seen about Jacob? He's sometimes strong. He's sometimes stupid. He's sometimes wise. He sometimes flounders. He sometimes walks with God. He's sometimes off doing his own thing. That's what the patriarchs and matriarchs in Genesis are like. But here is the one thing that Jacob gets right, at least by the end he gets right. And it is the most important thing that any of us can get right. He believed. He had faith. He wrestled with the angel for God to bless him. He believed God's word and repented and served him and got rid of the foreign gods. And now he settles in Canaan because he had faith enough to come back to Canaan. And because of that faith, the story continues. It's absolutely central. I don't know if this is encouraging or discouraging, but it is true. Sometimes the chief work that we have in life is to keep the story of God's faithfulness going to the next generation. Jacob had a lot of problems. He made a lot of mistakes. He sinned in some really big ways. But when it counted most, he came back to Canaan. When it counted most, he came back to Canaan. I said at the outset I would mention Genesis 36. It's a familiar chapter. It lists kings, the people who came from Esau. Typical genealogy, the generations of Esau. Very ordinary. But on the other hand, there's something else going on. Why is chapter 36 between Genesis 35 and Genesis 37? And you all look at me and go, you're really dumb at maths, aren't you? But, but why is chapter 36 between 35 and 37? Esau is not the chosen line. Jacob is. It does not memorialise his death. Two big sins in Esau's life. He sold his birthright for a porridge. Bad move. He married foreign wives. It's not an ethnic thing, it's a spiritual thing. Bound up at this point with an ethnic thing. Genesis 36 verse 2, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. If you've been here through the Genesis series, at various points for Isaac and Rebekah, it drove them crazy that Esau married women of the land. He married Canaanites, Hittites. That's why Rebekah sent Jacob away, not only to run away from Esau's murderous revenge, but to marry in the chosen line, not from the Canaanites. So his two sins, desperation, selling off his birthright, and the marrying of foreign wives. It wouldn't be a stretch to say Esau's sins were sex and money. Now the porridge, you don't think of money, but it is, I want something right now, and I will sell whatever I have to get it. And today, the big sins are the same, sex and money. Esau, though he is not the chosen line, has become a great nation. He's prospered, he's rich, he's wealthy, he has his own nation. Esau becomes the nation Eden. 
Eden. All the way through Genesis 36, Esau is Eden. These are the sons of Esau, Eden. These are the chiefs of Eden, that is Esau. Esau becomes Eden. Esau is a, Esau is a nation. He settles in Seir. Why is that significant? The final told of, these are the generations of Jacob. Genesis 37 verse 2. So Genesis 37, 1, goes with the back end of Genesis 36. And Genesis 37 verse 1 says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. You see the juxtaposition with chapter 36. Esau and Edom, the land of their possession. It's the same word for grasping that is used at the beginning of the Jacob-Esau story, where Jacob possesses the heel of his brother Esau. And the end of Genesis 36, Esau possesses the land in which he lives. Jacob is living in the land of sojourns. Jacob is still a sojourner. He's still an exile. Esau has an expanding empire. Unless you think God must be with Esau more than Jacob, Jacob is in the right place. But worldly greatness springs up more quickly than spiritual greatness. It's easier to build a world, earthly empire. It's easy to become great the Esau way rather than the Jacob way. Esau is fruitful, he is strong, he's secure. So the end of the Esau line is meant to raise the question, well, if that is the non-chosen line, what about the chosen line? And that's why we're going to get to the story of Joseph and God's providence over Jacob's family. This is the bottom line. One generation is dying off. It's deliberate, Genesis 35. Rebecca's gone, Deborah's gone, Rachel's gone, Isaac's gone. One generation has gone. Jacob's turn at the centre of the story is over. But the promise continues. Because God's plan of redemption moves forward. And the chosen people are in the chosen land. And at the end of our lives, my friend, at the end of the lives, the thing that I once said about me is that he dwelt in the land of Canaan. And of course that's not a spiritual location, but it is he lived the life of faith. I want that said about me, that I lived the life of faith. He dwelt in the land of Canaan. And the most important thing you may ever do is some small act of believing faithfulness that will continue the story of God. Impress on your children the importance of faith. Because this moment for Jacob, God is saying, I brought you here to do this. I'm fulfilling my promises. Now it's time to move on. I'm going to focus on your family. But Jacob, you dwelt in the land of Canaan. You believed. Many messages of our world is pitched towards the young, the next generation. There's such things, and I've never watched it, like TikTok, apparently, and there's others, if you're all avid, whatever. But they're pitched at young people. And sometimes the church can do that as well, and that's really important. But forget, what about when your time comes to an, an end? Whether you last hear a message 
about when your time comes to an end? What does God have for you? What has God left for you to do? Well, he has work for you to do, and it is chiefly the work of faith. Do our part, live by faith, and pass a legacy of faith to the coming generation. If you leave this earth and your children and grandchildren know that you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you prayed for them in Jesus' name and you passed on with your failings, because we have failings that I passed on to children, and that your children see your faith in Jesus and they saw in you what this generation saw in Jacob, that he made mistakes but he repented and he dealt with it and he said, I'm sorry, I did not get to the right place but I'm going to make it right before my time is done. That may be what God has for you to do. As the story passes over, from, passes from your generation to the coming generation. Because God is not done with you. And you're not done playing a part in God's story of redemption. Because for all that Jacob got wrong, he got this right. He believed. And he dwelt in Canaan. May the Lord grant that our portion that we dwell in Canaan, that is, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the importance of that passing on to the next generation. For his namesake. Amen.